Hello, everybody, and welcome to the China Tech Investor Podcast, powered by TechNode, seeking truth from facts when it comes to Chinese tech stocks and IPOs. I am Elliot Zagman, and joining me is one of Beijing's most prolific digital e-commerce entrepreneurs, digital economy entrepreneurs, working simultaneously with three different side hustles as Natuan Delivery Man, as DD Driver, and as fashion live blogger influencer, all at once. It is James Hall. You know, funny that you, that that's ridiculous though, but actually funny that you said that. I did think, uh, and I've talked to my wife about this, it would be really funny if a foreigner became a DD or like a like a delivery guy. Like, thank God for those guys. Those guys are amazing. But if a foreigner did it and then live streamed it and like spoke Chinese and you had like this the video of the person opening the door when you deliver something, I mean, it'd be it'd be hilarious. Um, you know, Raz yeah. from from Huayanhui, like they do um like a bunch of he's like a this this Israeli guy. Uh, he speaks really good Chinese. He did a video a couple of years ago where he was like a, a Meituan driver um and it was just kind of you know funny thing but you can't i think you could technically do a live you couldn't do the fashion thing but you could you could do live streaming you could do and you know you could be a dd driver and also be a matron driver right you go you 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 pick up the food you pick up the person and then you drop them off drop the person off drop the food off so theoretically i think that's possible right um i did have one time there was a uh this was a couple years ago i got in a cab and the the cab driver was was live streaming, and he 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 turned it away when I got there, and I was like, "Well, what are you doing?" And he's like, "Yeah, you know, we got a Tripua live stream," and he had a couple thousand viewers, and I was like, "Oh, this is awesome!" Because I, I think it was like later at night, I was drunk, or I had been drinking. I wouldn't say I was drunk, but uh, <laughs> I started just kind of like talking to people, and it was a lot of fun. And but yeah, it's uh, speaking of live streaming. I had a very interesting experience over the last week. So I'm doing a bit of a China tour, Hong Kong, Shanghai. Um, now I'm in Beijing, but I was visiting a client in Hangzhou and this client does some live streaming, like fashion live streaming. And I went to visit some of their their key opinion leaders, like their KOLs. And it was just incredible. It's one of those things where, you know, that just makes China so friggin' interesting you just see all these new business models arising everywhere and these people who are just, you know, often so intense and so entrepreneurial about it. You know, I visited this one, you know, young woman who she does fashion live streaming, basically where she, her sister uh, and her husband run this this business where every single day, seven days a week, she uh, live streams herself trying on clothes and her sister trying on clothes. And she's very funny. How many hours a day? Five hours a day. So she basically starts around 7 or 7.30 and ends around midnight. And she is, she's got excellent improv skills. You can tell. She just talks and talks and talks and talks and talks. She's making jokes the whole time. Like she's super entertaining. But also what she's doing is she is going directly to factories and figuring out what clothes are decent quality, what factories are making, are making good, you know, reasonably priced fashion. And she's purchasing all this herself, right? And then selling it all. Uh, so she buys it up front? Uh, yeah. Um, so she, I believe she does, she wow. buys some of it up front and then she can, she can basically have to send an order directly to, to the factory, right? 
But for some of that stuff, she can anticipate that she'll have a certain amount that she'll be able to sell. So she'll so she'll know, okay, this is probably going to be hot. So uh, we're going to have this special deal. Uh, if you, you can get this special deal, uh, the first person or the first 10 people to buy it will get it, right? So she, and then uh, after that, you know, maybe she'll bring it up, up in the, the next live broadcast and she can just send a direct, uh, a direct order to the factory or something like that. But basically, you know, you visit, uh, we were visiting her and she has this like studio where she's filming, but it, they're in a warehouse. On the top floor is the studio. The second floor, they have 60 employees inspecting the clothes, uh, sending it out, shipping it all out. Um, and, you know, her and her husband and her sister running this business, and they're probably making, you know, a, a few million U.S. dollars a month. Just just insane. Both, both the, the energy that they're bringing to it, you know, they'll get just the amount of work that, that this involves. But, but also the amount of time it takes and just the complexity of running this, it's just incredible. But, you know, also you have this need for them really to evolve their their business model, right? So you can't be live streaming for forever, um, especially if you have other goals in life. You have to find ways to, it's, it's not easy to, to start a business like that. So, you know, we, we've talked about the industrial internet before and how, and we're going to talk about that later on with our guest, Michael Norris. It, there, there is so much need for basically for for digital systems to uh, basically be able to to support so many of these uh, smaller retailers. But anyways, uh, we could talk about more about that later. Well, we got a lot on the show today. First, why don't you do our disclaimer, James, <laughs> and do and announce the uh, the normal stuff? Yeah. So nothing said on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Or solicitation of services, even our numbers may be incorrect or off. Investing is risky. Speak with your financial advisor and do your own research before making investment decisions. Yeah, so we got Pinduoduo, Meituan announced earnings um, last week, and the market didn't like either of them. Should we dive in, or should we? We also got Michael Norris coming on later. Exactly. So we sh- we should say for our listeners. Yeah, we should say for our listeners, first of all, stay tuned because we do have Michael Norris coming on. He's going to talk about basically the changing business models of the Chinese digital landscape. But yeah, now let's dig in to, before that, we do have Pinduoduo and Meituan's earnings to go into. So you want to do uh, Pinduoduo first, James? Okay, yeah. So the after they announced their results, basically the market, uh, well, while they were announcing the results and during the earnings call, the, the stock price went down quite a bit and then it ended the day down 18%. So the problems here are there's, you know, the biggest kind of most obvious one is their sales and marketing expense is 102% of revenues for 2018. Like we pointed out, by the way, in our Q3, our podcast on their Q3 results. So the problem here is sales and marketing expense is increasing at 900% while revenues are increasing at 652%. These are ridiculous percents. You know, nine times growth in sales and marketing, or eight times, and then you know, five point five times in, in revenues. This is crazy. The way they explain it in their earnings call and their earnings release, sorry, is uh, we invested in cultivating greater user recognition through online and offline advertising campaigns and promotions. So anyway, this all of this led to a, a pretty large net loss for ordinary shareholders of uh, ten point three billion. And after you, if you add back share based compensation expense, 
that net loss is still pretty sizable. It's $3.45 billion. But, you know, like for these growing tech companies and particularly for, you know, Amazon, Amazon had basically no profit for a very long time. But what they did have was negative working capital. And a lot of these companies, you know, what negative working capital means is that you don't have profits per se, but when you look at your cash flow from operations, it ends up being positive because you're just selling more stuff on your platform. And that that float you get from like when you receive cash from customers and then when you pay it out to, you know, the suppliers or the manufacturers, whoever else who's where who you're getting the products from, there's a gap. You know, sometimes it could be a month, probably could be longer. For Pinduoduo, they they say that they're they release the cash around uh, 15 days or so. Uh, but, and I calculated their, you know, they call this, I call it the line item is payables to merchants. And this line item is the, it's the cash that they have to pay to the merchants of the, of the stuff they sold on their platform. So what, what happens with Pinduoduo is you come in, you set up an account, uh, you can set up a free account, and then you can start selling things. Uh, once you sell some stuff, if you want to withdraw your money, you have to pay a merchant deposit. And once you pay a merchant deposit, then you can withdraw. And you can request the withdrawal, and usually you get your money in like two to four days. So if you're, if you're a merchant and you want to get your money off the platform, you, you know, you have to wait for the order to be delivered. They have a, like a mandatory kind of week long process that, that, that it takes. But then eventually you get you get your money back. Now the thing is, they have this other item on their uh, balance sheet called restricted cash. Restricted cash. Um, there's a footnote in their cash flow statement that basically says this is the cash that goes into a bank supervised account where it's reserved for payments to merchants. So this is quite a bit like um, payables to merchants, but the the problem is they're not. Completely the same. So, if you look back at uh, you know 2017, they had a restricted cash that was about 9.4 billion, and then they had uh, payables to merchants of 8.7, and then merchant deposits of about 1.5. So their their restricted cash is above these levels. So my kind of question is, when they get these payables to merchants, and does it go directly into this? Restricted bank account, and when does it come out, and when can this cash be freely utilized by Pinduoduo? They haven't really clarified that, and I'm kind of I'm work. I've written an article. I'm working on a uh, kind of smaller version for TechNode that should come out soon. But there's some interesting things happening here. So there's there's something called the emerging uh growth company status which is in the US for US listed companies and Meituan or Pinduoduo is no longer considered EGC and because of that they have to adopt uh a new accounting standard that basically forces them to give more disclosure on their restrictions of cash and so while they release their year end press release earnings release uh, they haven't filed their Form 20F. Their Form 20F is basically a, like a the foreign filers 10K, basically the annual filing that goes to the SEC in the U.S. So anyway, I'm looking forward to seeing what 
they describe as the nature of these restrictions on their cash. It's basically going to decide, the, the, the reason why this is important is if these are restricted, if payables to merchants and merchants' deposits are restricted in some nature, or maybe they should be considered as so, they actually have negative free cash flow. Ooh. And if and that's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> that means they know they don't have that negative working capital that Amazon had. Well, I, I think what 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 is also the context to put this in is that this is not this is not exactly a, an unfamiliar story to those who follow China's tech landscape. That you know there this was something that was an issue with uh, the bike shares basically where they were using cash that was not really theirs to use in their deposits in order to grow their business. Um, so yeah, this is something to, you know, sounds like definitely something to look into. This is something that, that I know, you know you've talked about on the podcast before, but yeah, definitely a, um, a cause for concern. Um, what, what are the, the, the possible scenarios here from, from your perspective? What's fr- from either the most charitable to Pinduoduo to the least charitable? So the most charitable is when they say restricted cash, that there's some period of days where it stays in this account and then it is considered restricted. And then if the merchants don't take it off, I guess then it becomes unrestricted. Now, the interesting thing is payables to merchants isn't something that goes to their revenue line item, right? They they get revenue from charging kind of service fees, advertising fees, and things like that. This merchants, uh, payables to merchants is really like, it's the GMV, the gross kind of like all the transactions that happen on their platform. This is a, a cause of that. So, you know, a balance sheet is basically a snapshot at any point in time. So this is like the point in time snapshot of how much cash is sitting in this maybe bank, special bank reserve that is waiting to get paid to merchants. And obviously it's constantly flowing and there's there's some some flow there. Now the question is, is Pinduoduo able to use it? If they are, wow, this is an amazing business. If they're not, okay, now what about the merchant deposits? Now you mentioned uh, OFO, you know, they were caught using these deposits. They weren't able to pay back as quickly as you know they said they would actually I don't I haven't followed it if they've been able to pay back or not but if some of these merchants start so the only reason you would take your merchant deposit off the platform it's a baozhengjin in in chinese is the only way you can take it off is you have to close your virtual shop and basically delete your account and then they they will give you your deposit back so I, I would guess for Pinduoduo, there's a lot of people that think they can join and like sell stuff. And, you know, I've even seen some stuff on the internet where people, you know, set up an account and they try to like buy stuff off Taobao and then like resell it on Pinduoduo and like all this, all this stuff. And maybe there's, and I'm just speculating here, but maybe there's some way to kind of get some, some like free, Subsidies and capitalize the free subsidies somehow with some friends and create a little little scheme. I wouldn't recommend doing that. It's probably against the law, but you know it's China. Anything's possible. So yeah, I, I don't know if that answered your question, but I, I, okay. So the worst, so the the best case would be that they're able to use all this capital that's not restricted. The worst case would be 
Oh wait, actually, some of this is more restricted than we've made made clear in our filings. You know, maybe merchant deposits we shouldn't be using. Maybe we should, you know, can create like a merchant reserve requirement sort of thing where, you know, they keep thirty percent or fifty percent uh, in a reserve so that if merchants do want to leave the platform, they're able to pay them. Mm-hmm. And if they do that, if they if they use fifty percent, let's say there's still negative cash flow for 2018, mm. although 2017 is positive free cash flow. So yeah, I, mean, I think you know this is kind of for me this is where the rub is, where the tire hits the road here for um, Pinduoduo. If they have this negative net working capital, it's really nice. It's a great thing for a business to grow and have this. But we know you know when you call it a deposit. In China and elsewhere around the world, uh, you have to treat those things differently. Um, but so maybe they change the name from deposit to something else. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I think of all of the companies on our watch list. I mean, you can correct me if you disagree with me, but you know, Pinduoduo is very young. They have a, a newer business model. They're venturing into you know less developed territory. If there's one company that would have the potential to be the most potential to have some fishiness around its numbers, I think that you know, Pinduoduo would be the one to look at. Not that they necessarily are, but it does sound like the um, it has some characteristics of maybe some other companies that would have, that would be likely to, um, to be not entirely, um, you know, all their T's crossed and I's dotted when it comes to their books. Yeah. But you know, we had we had been looking into this for a while, kind of expect like looking at their their stock and thinking that it was probably a bit inflated. And uh, Tim Colpan kind of re- reflected our thoughts here as well in a, a business a Bloomberg opinion piece that he wrote. You know, friend of the pod, Tim Colpan, your hero and mine. Um, he said, if you can explain China's Pinduoduo, lunch is on me. Marketing costs have blown out to exceed revenue, yet investors draw up the stock 60% since the company's IPO. And we had been talking about this over the past few months, you know, that, that Pinduoduo was trading through um, February and early March at above 30 uh, US dollars per share. And now they're down below 25, I believe. At the time of recording, they're about 24. Um, but we had, you know, both you and I had been talking about either shorting it or, or selling what we had. And, uh, you know, this is why you listen, you know, to, to the China Tech Investor Podcast, even though this is not investment advice. Um, anyways, do, do you want to move on to... Uh... Yeah, ju- just full disclosure, I, I did short it. And I ended up covering it around 26. But... Uh, I think 25 is, is where it is right now. It's kind of a magic number because this is where they did their secondary offering. And, you know, not to put on my tinfoil hat if I can for a second, you know, there's a lot of banks that helped them raise money in that secondary offering and a lot of investors who invested in it who would like to see the price not go below $25. You know, I at $25, it's still trading at, you know, 15 times sales, uh, which is, you know, compared to Tencent, which is around 10, Alibaba's around 9. You know, it seems a little rich to me. I, you know, everyone has their, um, but now I'm not shorting it anymore. I actually, I actually just own some puts on it, but yeah, we'll see, see how it goes. Hey, hey James, you know what would be fun to do? What? What what if we did, what if we did like a tinfoil hat episode? Oh yeah. Like, 
where we said like like full disclosure. We never like this we're, is we're, all we're nonsense. Never. <laughs> or, or like just just like like what if you know just just all like this is what I've been hearing when I had dinner with this person who know that person and who knew this person and who said that right <laughs> just oh, uh, but you yeah. know maybe maybe disclose it all ahead of time make it clear that it's all you know conspiracy theories but you know if you're a listeners that that I think that would be a lot of fun uh, if you're a listeners let us know if that would be something you'd be interested in uh, anyways uh, do you want to move on to Meituan? Uh yeah sure so Meituan also had a you know the market generally when I say the market I mean their stock price went down <laughs> the market didn't like it uh, they went from fifty seven Hong Kong dollars down about eight point three percent the day after they announced and then they fell again the second and third day third day for a total of about fifteen point two but since then it's bounced back up to fifty five point ten. Uh, Hong Kong dollars. Um, so I think also problem here, similar but not as severe as Pinduoduo, they're selling a marketing expense is above gross profit instead of being above revenues. Their sales and marketing grew 45%, revenues grew 92%, so that's that's positive. But the gross profit only grew 23.7%. There's a, when you look at their their statement, I mean, it's kind of nuts because they had a negative, they had a net loss of like a, over a hundred billion uh, Hong Kong dollars when their revenues are only sixty-five billion. But the reason why is they have a ver- a fair value change in convertible, redeemable preferred shares, which is basically a non-cash item, right? But it does, even though it like doesn't affect the cash situation of the company. Uh, it does create dilution, and that's why it has to go through their income statement. But I think the most interesting thing about their filing was they talked about the Mobike acquisition and released some numbers mm-hmm. around that. So they they bought Mobike. This might have been known before, but now it's it's in their filing. The consideration was nine point four billion in cash, which is great for Mobike, and then five point eight billion in preferred shares. They go into like the breakdown of all the value of the company. So they valued the trade name of Mobike at 1.6 billion Hong Kong dollars. What? Yeah. Wow. But they've since, <laughs> what's it called? They've impaired the trade name by 1.3 billion because they're, mm. they're renaming it, right? So they, they value it at this and they're renaming it. Yeah. It's, all, it's kind of funny. The user list of Mobike, they valued at 840 million Hong Kong or RMB. Sorry, this is all in RMB now. The only thing in Hong Kong dollars was the uh, price of the stock. So RMB eight hundred and forty million. Now, if we're assuming that, and I based this user number off of the deposits, which I'll talk about in a sec- in a second. But if we assume forty point six million users, that's about twenty million RMB per user. So that's that was kind of interesting. Okay. They also had deposits from transaction. Users, so they so Meituan bought Mobike in April 2018, and when they bought it, there was 8.1 billion RMB on their balance sheet for these deposits, customer user deposits. Then in July 2018, they offered refunds for all the deposits, and they said, "Okay, you can use Mobikes without putting in a deposit." Now, what's super interesting is how many people do you think? Actually requested their deposit back. Like what percent of their users? It's 
Five? 59%. I would assume like 100%. Everyone would just let me get my deposit back if I can get it back. Only 59% of users requested to get their deposit back. So they, you know, by the end of the year, they paid back 4.8 billion RMB in deposits and they currently still have 3.3 billion on their balance sheet. Kind of interesting. Wow. Well, I thought no one would care, <laughs> but I guess I was wrong. But that's still like that's still not. Well, I mean, look know. at Ofo and how how everyone's like clamoring to get their deposits back. I mean, yeah, I think this is everyone knows that Ofo was going to going to hell in a handbasket. So maybe it was like a strategy to because they knew Ofo had a problem with their deposits. Maybe this was like let's offer deposits, and it's just going to make it even harder for Ofo. Mm. <laughs> that's kind of interesting. Anyway, um, so the company on a total basis had a negative, Mobike this is, had a negative net tangible asset value of negative 835 million RMB. And they valued the company at like 15 billion. So, you know, you net negative net tangible asset value. Anyway, I thought that was super interesting. And then also you can, if you do some calculations, you can come to these numbers, but Mobike, based on what I've calculated here, their revenues for 2018 were about 1.76 billion, and they had a 6.1 billion Nizarin RMB, 6.1 billion net loss for Mobike 2018. So, still valued it lower than P- Pinbo. So, so did, have they impaired this? Uh, so they only impaired they impaired two things. They impaired the. Uh, the trade name for they did 1.3 billion in, in, in RMB, um, and then they also impaired because they're restructuring Mobike, uh, and they've announced that they're selling off basically different regions and different like areas of Mobike. I think this is more globally. They impaired about 400 million uh, RMB, so that's that's obviously smaller, but yeah. I mean, I, I've I've done some work with some. Should I keep going? Go on to their cash position. <laughs> um, do you want to? Um, we could talk a little bit, but I do want to say that, uh, like, I've I've done some work with some mobile folks in the past, and I, I mean, I can't say enough good things about them. But like, good for them, you know, selling the you know the founding team for selling at that at, at basically you know the, the the peak of their valuation. So good on them. You know, they they're doing great. But also, like, that was a. That was a stinker, man. That, like, you got to wonder if you're Wang Xing, you know, the founder and CEO of Meituan, like you got to be thinking, what, oof, like, what do I have on my hands here? Well, the, I mean, coming to their cash position, and it's actually a decent segue. They're they're like they're way way better off than um, you know Pinduoduo is. Uh, if we're going to compare, I mean, they did. We're talking about them today. So their cash and cash equivalents plus short term investments. Is and this excludes restricted cash, is about a fifty-eight point eight billion RMB. So that's very sizable. And if you look at, I mean, they are burning cash. Uh, free cash flow looks negative to me. Uh, operating cash flow is nine negative nine point two billion, and they had a capex uh, plant property equipment. Take that into account. It's like a negative eleven point four. But they are spending a lot of money. I mean, they're they're doing business combinations. They're they're buying other investments. Uh, there's, a, there's there's a lot going on. I do, I mean, I do wonder 
how long it'll take to get some of these businesses, these these uh, business units of theirs to profitability. But you know, if we when I look, they have they also announced their expenses by nature, which I really like about uh, Hong Kong companies IFRS. They have food delivery rider costs forty seven percent of revenues, thirty point five billion RMB. Food delivery rider. Explain rider costs. Yeah, so. I guess paying the the guys that deliver food. Oh, uh, so and they're for their bikes driver. and for their you know fixing their bikes. Drivers, yeah. Okay. I would, I'd imagine that it's all looped in there, or maybe it's just the riders. Maybe it's just their the riders cut and it's forty seven percent. That's down by the way on a percent of revenues basis from fifty four percent in twenty seventeen. Mm. But it is obviously like their revenues growing like crazy, ninety two percent revenue growth. This did grow sixty seven percent. And there's some other kind of interesting line items, you know, employee benefits, transacting user incentives. So what they're spending to incentivize their transacting users is 8% of revenue. That's down from 12% uh, in 2017. But yeah, I think, you know, I mean, it, as an investment, they're, they're safer because they have more cash, uh, but they are, they are burning cash. I mean, if they can keep this $11 billion Cash burn kind of going, you know they have fifty eight billion in in R and B in cash and, and short term investments. That presumes about five years, right? Yeah, I mean, but also I I, I was yeah, they got five year runway. It's pretty good. And I, and I was reading um, some of the stuff that you know our hero Tim Culpan wrote about uh, about this, and basically you know he was kind of praising them, basically saying like you know it's. They pulled off the band-aid with Mobike in a lot of these, you know, these expenses with this report, and um, it, it puts them in a better situation rather than just trying to um, basically make excuses or trying to justify, you know, Mobike's valuation or you know their their losses, and uh, you know, just move forward. Um, yeah, at least at least it seems like they're moving in the right direction, but if they can't find a way to to really be making a path to profitability sometime soon. You know, you still got to question them. All right. So are we ready to go? Uh... Yeah, let's go to the interview. So many of our listeners will be familiar with the tendency that we have on this podcast when we have a guest on to speak for a little bit longer with them than maybe uh, uh, we would have previously scheduled. Uh, this is definitely the case with our interview with Michael Norris. We ended up speaking with him for over an hour. So what we're going to be doing is splitting this up into two parts. The first part, which you'll listen to in this episode, will be uh, us discussing Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu, and JD, um, as well as the general model that he is looking at for for new areas for companies to be to be moving into in, in the China uh, digital commerce and digital uh, economy space uh, for the next few years. And then what we're going to be doing next episode is we're going to go more into the the newer or less mature players being Didi, Meituan, and Pinduoduo. So enjoy part one of our interview with Michael Norris. So joining us today is Michael Norris. Michael Norris is Research and Strategy Manager at Asian Agency China, but I came to know of him as a Technode contributor, where he has recently written a number of very interesting pieces digging into uh, the, the latest developments of China's digital economy and what the, the winners and losers are doing in that space right now. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. 
So you've written that we are in the midst of a turning point for China's digital economy. Um, can you explain what, what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. So nobody put this better than Robin Lee during Baidu's last earnings call. Uh, and the quote goes something like this. We have entered a, a new stage in China's internet where the population and penetration dividend has gone. And in my article at the top of the year, I wrote that three things had propelled China's digital ecosystem to staggering heights. The first is loads of new users. The second is big increases in time on device. And the last is stacks of money. <laughs> and as Robin Lee said, we're in a time where the first thing, this new users, is close to sort of tapping out. And it's my uh, humble view that the other two things, the big cre- increases on time on device and the stacks of money, are starting to peter out a, a, a little bit as well. So at the moment, big increases in time on device mainly comes from third, fourth, and fifth tier cities. Uh, users in those cities are still forming their online habits, which gives space for players like Pinduoduo, Kuaishou, and Chutoutiao to snap up sizable user bases in record time. And if the recent wave of closures, layoffs, and restructurings are anything to go by, the hot money that helped drive, or in some cases buy, growth isn't flowing as it once did. So I think we're in a turning point in that sense. And it's not just Robin Lee and myself who uh, think like that. Uh, so a couple of years ago, uh, Meituan Dianping, CEO, called it uh, the second half of the internet, uh, which I think is a little bit silly because it, <laughs> it supposes that there's only two halves of the internet, kind of. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure that's a proposition I agree with. Uh, instead, I'm calling it the end of the beginning, mm. uh, which is what Ben Evans called it. Um, and I think that's apt because we've got to remember that the end of fast, easy growth isn't necessarily a Chinese thing. Um, much of the sort of the developed world in terms of the mobile internet is ex- is experiencing or has experienced the same the same issue. And I'll close off, I guess, here on a on a quote from Ben Evans, who said that close to three quarters of all the adults on the earth have a smartphone, and most of the rest will get one in the next few years. And that's the situation that we're facing in China. Yeah, but although the the richest people have a smartphone. Uh, and that's, that is kind of, I guess to your point that some of that low hanging fruit really is, 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 is not quite there like it used to be where Correct. people who are now getting online, you know, James and I have talked a lot about this with Xiaomi and with ByteDance. Um, mm. is that, you know, that, that next billion that are maybe in India or Africa or Southeast Asia, you know, they're, they're not going to have the same kind of, um, you know, spending power as, uh, as this past. Yeah. So, yeah. So Michael, you've said also that, uh, China's tech giants must become, uh, quote unquote thicker in order to compete. How are they doing that? And kind of what are the six avenues of growth that you've identified? Yeah. Uh, a great question. So again, I'll, I'll start with a quote. Uh, this one is from Tom Goodwin. So he's got two quotes. The first is in 2015 and the second's in 2018. And I think both of them are actually quite pertinent to what we're discussing. Uh, so the first quote goes something like this. Uber, the world's largest taxi company, owns no vehicles. Facebook, the world's most popular media owner, creates no content. Alibaba, the most valuable retailer, has no inventory. And Airbnb, the world's largest accommodation provider, owns no real estate. Something interesting is happening. So that's 2015. And then we go to 2018, where the quote flips to... The world's largest taxi firm, Uber, is buying cars. The world's most popular media company, Facebook, now commissions content. 
the world's most valuable retailer is now Amazon, and it has more than 350 stores. And the world's largest hospitality provider, Airbnb, increasingly owns real estate. Things change. And so this is the thickness that I'm talking about. Digital first companies are becoming thicker. They're moving away from this thin interface that purifies or rematches supply and demand to a thicker interface that purifies or rematches supply and demand on their turf, using their kit and on their terms. And so when we look at what's happening in China, we let's let's have a let's have a look. So Alibaba has stakes in four of China's six major largest uh, large uh, courier service firms, and is off now offering brands like Starbucks and Nestle the ability to use its own logistics network rather than the ones that they've built themselves. Alibaba and Tencent have stakes in six of China's top ten grocery chains. Meituan is moving to operate its own uh, low budget hotel chain, and JD is now operating a network of franchise convenience stores across the country. So likewise, um, Chinese internet giants are moving to a greater degree of thickness. They're moving away from this very cute interfacing layer to something that spreads across different slices of economic activity. Yeah. So you mentioned in, in uh, one of your articles, I can't remember which one, but about these basically, uh, uh, I, I would say like a six by six or is, is a, a table yeah. that, that basically lays out um, you know, seven major tech giants yep. and six avenues of growth that you've identified. You know, you, you, you talked about how some of these, what, what, ooh, what was the term, the Chinese that, that was used like earlier on the internet about basically like you find just a space where there's open wind. What was the? Yeah. Um, yeah. So a, a phone call. A phone call. So this right. idea of kind of like uh, speculative mouth. investment flows, trying to bet on the next big thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Basically, like those Funkos have have closed up. There's still some of them, and you identified six of those avenues, and you basically looked at which which Chinese of these seven major tiny Chinese tech giants are playing in what space. Yeah, can you go over what those six avenues are, and then also um, what's how each of the the seven major tech giants are are getting in there? Yeah. So uh, what I did was I created a kind of like a mental model for the generalist watching China's internet space. And and so the six uh, directions went something a little like this. The first is deployment of new tech. So this idea of like investing in the cloud or investing in artificial intelligence and deploying it. Um, The second is enterprise level digital services and transformation. Uh, So, you know, we talk a lot about Tencent, Baidu and Alibaba sort of doing an about face. They're going from consumer focused models to something that uh, resembles something a little bit more like a SaaS company. Overseas expansion is the next one. Lower tier city expansion, the one after that. Uh, One more is local services. So the on-demand economy. So uh, being able to deliver medicine, food, whatever it is, as and when you want it. And then the last one is this idea of, of new mediums or new ways to sort of search, connect, buy, and share. And so what I did was I sort of identified these six, and then I started mapping each of what the major tech players that I follow, which is uh, Baidu, Ali, Tencent, ByteDance, uh, Meituan, uh, Didi, Pindledore, and JD, are doing at each. So I looked at uh, what they'd written in their media plans. I looked at their earnings statements. I looked at how they restructured and where they were investing. And the result is that handy sort of seven by six framework where you can sort of trace almost what's happening and where big bets have been, have, have been made. Uh, and so, for instance, when you look at, when you've got something like this, then you can sort of contextualize what's happening. So when you read the news today, for instance, that 
Uh, ByteDance has sort of doubled down in terms of gaming. It's purchased a, 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 a new gaming company. Then you can sort of say, all right, well, that's a new medium place. So the idea of being able to combine um, gaming with something that they do very, very well, which is a recommendation algorithm, uh, potentially, or the idea that you're moving into sort of live streaming of video games uh, or, chunk, or chunking those bits of good play and then packaging them up in some sort of form of like a uh, uh, professionally user-generated content, PUGC. So it just helps you, uh, the generalist, that is, be able to be able to work out what's going on. And then if you're super sophisticated, you can have two sets of uh, seven by six matrices whereby uh, you watch where the investment flows go in one and then in the other one you watch what the what the firms are actually doing themselves. Yeah, and for those, for those listening, uh, you can find this uh, on TechNode a February 20th article called Growing in a Mature Market, Six Directions for China's Tech Giants. Uh, search that. We'll, we'll leave a link in our show notes as well. But Michael, you had, just looking at this, uh, this chart in front of me, um, yeah. there, there's, there's two companies that are active in all six spaces. Yep, correct. Uh, and they're Alibaba and Tencent. Um, when looking at those two, are there are there certain areas where you think uh, one has a lead over another, or um, where you think one? How might their strategies differ, um, yep. and how might they maybe be balancing it in different ways? Yeah, sure. So as we sort of go across those two, like you said, they're active in all. Um, look, the focus uh, for me this year is who's going to win the two B race, or who's winning in the two B race. So those first two columns, the new tech R and D and the industry digital transformation. I think the rest is more or less settled. So the idea of overseas expansion, their sort of respective overseas strategies, a lot of folks have talked about that. Um, the idea of targeting lower tier, uh, I think it, both of them are, are well aware of what they have to do. They've made strategic investments to that point. Uh, the only difference being the level of control that they look to exert over those investments. Local services, again, uh, something quite similar. And then when it comes to new mediums, of course, Tencent, uh, on the whole, does a does a better job. But where I'm focused this year is sort of the new tech R and D and the industry digital transformation, and uh, what I see as almost a, a duopoly, uh, particularly particularly in the new retail space, uh, which is something that I watch quite closely. Insofar as we're moving towards Alibaba or Tencent shopping malls, insofar as the sort of the retailers are hooked up to a preferred payment provider, uh, and then uh, how they sort of uh, do their media buys or their ad spend is also influenced by that very decision. So we're sort of getting closer to this alignment between uh, the retailers themselves as well as the the the, uh, the property developers who who of course uh, rent the space to the retailers. And I think that that's fascinating, uh, and that's an area that I'm going to keep a, a good close eye on as the year progresses out. And when you look at Baidu, I mean, Baidu is a, a, a company that I see really, you know, if, if we listen, when, when we listen, we discussed their um, their earnings call just a couple of weeks ago, and they really seem to be putting all their eggs in the AI uh, content recommendation basket, right? In a lot yeah. of ways going, you know, competing very, very directly with ByteDance. Um, but they all also seem to be trying to compete in this, to be space. Yeah. Um, where do you see Baidu's positioning in, com- in comparison with Alibaba or Tencent when it comes to that 2B war? Yeah. So in terms of the 2B, I think it's worth sort of differentiating between 
uh, pure private business plays in the sense of the word that you and I are familiar with as opposed to the SOE play. And the two SOE model, I think, is where Baidu has a natural advantage relative to Tencent and Alibaba. And that's where I would see it uh, trying to extend itself. And indeed, when you sort of reel through the list of folks that uh, have signed up to its services, more often than not, they do have a, a sort of a government ownership structure behind them. Um, whereas from what we see with the sort of um, Alibaba's new retail alliances through its A100 program, I mean, the two flagship customers that it's got right off the bat are Nestle and Starbucks. Um, and then the same when it comes to uh, Tencent is uh, that the early sort of partnership options or the, or the folks that it's exploring those opportunities with just happen to be ventures that it and JD have invested in. So the starting point of each of those firms is a little bit different. And I think that's illustrative and instructive. Um, could you, we've also talked about uh, JD recently. Could you talk a little bit about them and how you see them? Oh, uh, well, and this is not investment advice, right. but um, if I'm looking at JD, I am very, 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 I guess, how does one say, politely. Can I say that it's a shit show? We, we, <laughs> yeah, there you go, man. We, we, uh, <laughs> polite is not our thing, man. Okay, okay, mature okay, audiences. Okay. Maybe we can get a okay, beef on mature, that. Mature audiences, mature audiences, it's, it, it's a shit show. Um, here's why. So... In 2016, JD reached what I would call its zenith, uh, which is point in time where uh, during the single during Singles Day, the, the the folks at Alibaba who were in charge of different product categories were told that if JD eclipsed them in a particular category, they would lose their job. That is how serious it was taken. So. And then when you look in 2018 and two, uh, 2017, 2018 and you sort of speak to the same category managers, the threat or that threat of them losing their job on, on JD overtaking them in a particular category was not so much of an issue. And mm. that I think is, so that's instructive in and of itself. The second is the, I guess, the very flip-flopping reactive strategy that it's had both across e-commerce and offline retail. So originally when confronted with new retail, um, uh, JD had a, what I would describe as a commanding position. They were thinking about it. Uh, indeed, Homa's CEO at the time, uh, or Homa's CEO now, uh, Hoi, is a, is a former JD logistics executive who was tasked with uh, spearheading offline retail. And uh, some, some analysis from uh, Sanchez Cook suggests that Hoi got annoyed at the fact that uh, Richard Liu, uh, Liu Changdong, was, was too... Uh, I guess, conservative about the new retail push. He didn't think that there was a good business case for an offline retail supermarket. And then it was just at that point in time where um, Alibaba was considering this play um, and then snapped up a whole year. And so, so there's, so there's that. So there's the, I guess, the sort of the, the reactivity of its new retail, retail play and its new retail strategy. And then you look at the new, the latest moves. So this idea of uh, when Pingordor came out. Um, they sort of shunned away from the group buying, and it was only very late in the piece that they announced Pin Gold. So they could have they could have moved much sooner to to take advantage of that, and instead they didn't. They waited for it to. Uh, well, Pindledor actually has more uh, monthly active users than JD at, at the present time. That was something that happened middle of last year. So they waited until until the the threat was in the rearview mirror before acting. 
And then the same when it comes to the reactivity of, uh, so uh, uh, NetEase has a, a young wet, which is this idea of, of, of uh, having a, a really nice sort of pork factory and conditions for the pigs to make great pork. So NetEase came out with this concept and then JD copied it. And it's just like, well, in what, in what, in what planet do you sort of say that this is good, good strategy? So, 2016. Well, the plan, I mean, yeah, well, I mean, this is, this is, this is the China internet sector. Copying <laughs> yeah. is good strategy well, <laughs> very I, often. I, I, I mean, that, I mean, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, and there is this, this idea of, uh, first mover or the leapfrog advantage and both have, uh, terms in Chinese and, uh, you know, there's, there's a sort of a linguistic basis for it. But on what sort of planet do you sort of look at this and do you go, hmm? Since 2016, JD's done a really good job when it comes to corporate strategy. You have to take all those pieces of evidence and go, mm. no, it's, it's, it's a shit show or pretty close to it. And then when you take those big data points and then you match them up with some small data. So if you go on to my mate, the sort of the bitchier version of LinkedIn and Glassdoor and you look for JD.com, everybody hates their <laughs> job. Now there might be some, there might be some, uh, self-selection there because the people that, uh, mm. of course go on, go on such a platform, they've, they, they very rarely have nice things to say. Yeah. But in terms of the recent news that's come out, uh, you know, 10% of the management structure is going to lose their jobs. Um, they're instituting, uh, mandated 995, so 12 hour days. You sort of look at this whole picture and it's very hard for you to be rosy about it all. So in that general context, I wrote a little bit about uh, why JD's tripping up in new retail. Can I just say real quick, um, JD, like on the last call, uh, Liu Changdong actually came on and, and uh, he actually said that what they're trying to do is to copy fast. And I mean, literally just admitting to exactly what you're saying there. Yeah, yeah no, that's, no, that's right. And then uh, I guess when we, when we think about uh, Liu Changdong as a, as a strategist, there's a question as to whether or not he at the moment is is fit for purpose. And when you look at some of the restructuring, this idea of, I guess, in Chinese, it's called the de-liu-chang-dong-ization of, 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 of Jing-dong, which is uh, yeah, in, in Chinese, <laughs> which is a fascinating term. And, 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 and just, just as to whether or not he is the right person to lead in, in terms of future growth or whether there needs to be some, some give way there. And, and I think that's, that's interesting to watch as well. As these sort of strategic miscalculations add up, you start to get to the point where you have to consider uh, let, letting the reins over to someone else or increasingly, as what most people do in times of panic, is they hold yeah. closer to the reins. And that actually accelerates the um, accelerates the, the decay or being disrupted. And let, let's not let's not forget Liu Changdong had a pretty bad, or Richard Liu had a pretty bad 2018 in other ways as well. It did well. indeed. <laughs> no, no, no. J, uh, JD, JD uh, in, in, in totality had a, had a terrible and awful 2018. Yeah. Um, and there's also, I mean, there, there are things, a, a number of question marks I have ever since, ever since the, the, the Minnesota incident, every major um, kind of government sponsored event uh, that, that Richard Liu had previously been at, uh, Richard Liu is now not there. So mm. he, at the Lianghui, he used to be an NBC, correct? Be an NBC delegate, yep. and he is not was not there this year. Which does, if I were a JD investor, that would be something I would be noticing. But yeah, I do think that that with with JD, I think you know Huawei. There are some some similarities as well. Is that they are very much 
their strength and their weakness is that they're very much, uh, they very much revolve around one very strong personality and that they implement a very intense culture that works very, very quickly. But what that then does is that does offer little flexibility for cultural change, right? So in some ways it is a, it is like, you know, the movie Speed, right? Where you have the bus going 40 miles an hour and if it drops below, the bomb will go off, right? And so it's the, so you can't switch the driver very easily in such a situation, especially when, you know, a lot of these companies, you know, the entire management structure and the entire culture has, is, is kind of devoted to them, right? So if they, if you put someone else in charge, you know, you kind of basically have to reshuffle the, the cards everywhere underneath. And when their business model requires so much and relies so much on speed, um, that is often not something that they can afford to do. So you have to wonder, like, like what can you do? In some ways, they're, they're very much kind of, they have their hands tied. They do, they do. And it's not easy instituting uh, change, particularly in some of these company structures where the, the founder owns so mm. much of the shareholding. Well, he'd have to step back and, you know, give shares uh, options to new management, but not, not, not easy to do. So they're one of the, they're one of the firms of those ones that I uh, watch and pay attention to that I'm relatively worried about. I should say here, sorry. Um, we do, we end up having, a lot of like, uh, we are not always very positive about JD. And sometimes our listeners who are more positive about JD don't always think we give them a fair shake. So I okay. do a little little devil's advocate here. Uh, when you talk yeah, about the, the thickening of these companies, right? Mm. One might say that JD has already made its investments on thickening itself in that it has the logistics yeah. infrastructure. It it is poised to be able to offer a lot of retail as a service uh, yes. you know, options, right? Without a lot of capex, yes. there probably. Um, yes. So, what would you say about that as a um, as a counter argument to to your argument? Oh yeah. So I'm relatively objective in so far as I, I call it as I see it, and it's sort of uh, I guess f- firm opinions held loosely. So I'm I'm, I'm happy to entertain that. JD has a strong logistics network, but I would caution those folks that um, are expecting more revenue from JD opening up its service network to consider this, that Alibaba now has stakes in um, four of the six major courier companies, uh, including SF Express, which is uh, against or compared with JD, it's, it's top of mind when it comes to reliable courier services. In that context, how do you think it's going to compete effectively when you are sort of outmuscled by four other competitors at the same time? They can squeeze your margins, margins that you're relying on to move away from thin margins of your JD mall. At that point, you've sort of got to question whether or not uh, having your own logistics network is, of course, has its advantages. But when you've been outmaneuvered in the way that JD has, you really have to question uh, the, the value of that as especially in the markets that they're going for. And if you speak to JD couriers, the actual people that drive the trucks uh, or the little the little three-wheeled uh, wagons, however you want to call them. Sambangs. Yeah, that's right. And, 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 you, uh, and you ask them what, what sort of packages don't you want to be taking? It's mail. 
It's it's corporate mail to office buildings like the ZTOs do and like the FS Expresses do because the efficiency is so low. And so at that point, you're so just taking a, a couple of additional data points and sort of adding it to your analysis. It gives color and flavor to the perspective that, okay, well, JD's opening up its logistics service network and it expects to have revenue at better margins from that. I'd, 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 I'd put a few question marks around that. And then when we go to the franchise network itself, my sort of, my research tells me that there might be, might be some elements of a China hustle there insofar as the numbers that they're claiming for the new retail SaaS solution or retail as a service, RAS, um, and the numbers that it's actually signed up, there's a discrepancy there. And there's also a, there's also questions as to whether or not they're double counting the folks that are in the franchise network and being signed up to the RAS solution as well. And when you think about it, those numbers are very difficult to scrutinize. So can you describe the difference between the, the franchise network and, uh, I guess, being on retail as a service? Yeah, sure. So um, let's say that if you're uh, signing up to the, the JD New Retail Franchise Network, what you do is you pay your 50,000 RMB in franchise fees. You get, a, you get a makeover. So your mom and pop convenience store gets a red logo emblazoned on it. Things get nicer inside the store. The POS terminals get upgraded, etc. And then you sign up to their supply chain network. And as part of the supply chain network, it tells you if it's got data on the location, which is, a, which is an, important, an important point. Um, it tells you what people are buying in the area based on JD.com data, right? And so you can optimize your inventory on that basis. The catch is that you have to buy from them. You have to forego all your existing supply networks. So that's, 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 that's the franchise model, right? Right. And then the retail as a solution is for the folks like HLA, uh, who, who, who JD have, of course, invested in. It's a, it's a nationwide retailer, and uh, JD helps out insofar as store selection, stock selection, etc. So the underlying tech, I'm sure, has a, a, a fair few overlapping elements, but the important thing is, one, is that franchise network, you are a franchisee in, in all intents and purposes, and you have to buy uh, or you have to source from JD. And then when it comes to the retail as a service network, you're a nationwide retailer, ideally, or a large retailer. They can roll this service out across a number of different stores and you get a helping hand along the way. So very different in terms of what that looks like and feels like on the ground. Okay. And then just to clarify, like I think JD has this convenience store network. I think you, you were also mentioning, is it, were you referring yeah. to 7Fresh? Uh, uh, no, uh, so Seven so Fresh is another proposition. Right. Uh, so Seven Fresh is their omni-channel supermarket. There's a handful of those. Perishable. Uh, yeah. yeah, correct. And then there's the unmanned convenience stores. Uh, and again, those are JD owned and operated. There's um, there's no franchise model there. The last one is where we're talking about the franchise model. So those that are familiar with the sort of the situation on the ground in China, you might have like in the sort of the residential compounds, you've got yeah. a, a mom and pop kind of like the sells vegetables and some smokes and stuff like that. Yeah, they're looking to brand those ones up. And it's and it's there that they have claimed to do that. So the claim is that they're going to open. Let me just get my numbers here so I'm exactly bang on. So they're planning to open a million of those. So rebrand is probably more accurate than open. Rebrand a million of those between 2017 and, and 2022. 
under a franchise model. Now, but the data point that I used in the article, and I'm going to use it again because I think it's instructive, is that there are 65,000 7-Elevens worldwide. So a million, <laughs> how many? So, I mean, assuming you acquire 200,000 franchisees per year under the plan, you're going to open three times 7-Elevens worldwide footprint inside a year. Now, for five consecutive years. Now, it doesn't take much for you to be able to say, okay, that's really impressive. And the different sort of the difference between a really impressive announcement, horse shit, and then a sort of like an SEC misleading and deceptive violation is actually very thin. Mm. And so where I'm trying to go in this article is to say, well, at the moment, on worst case scenario, it's got 30,000 after uh, 30,000 franchisees after two years in the plan. So well below the 400,000 that they'd need to reach target. And in best case scenario, they've got 50,000. Mm. So at what point does, uh, does Liu Chandong sort of wrapping this out and sort of saying, oh, we're going to open a million in five years? What does that, at what point does that become, uh, a, a sort of trigger for them to have some degree of SEC trouble. That sort of, sort of stuff is usually covered under forward-looking statements, and you know you gotta take it. I mean, as as uh, if you're looking at this from an investor's perspective, you gotta take it kind of with a grain of salt. Yeah, but also, I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, are they going to be like Seven Elevens, or are they going to be different than Seven Elevens? I think if you look at total convenience stores, there's probably a lot of difference, you know, and how you define them. If you would yeah, call sure. a Xiaomaibu like a convenient, how would you say that in English? Um, like your little mom and pop. Uh, like a, like a yeah. snack stand or whatever, um, yeah, whatever. You know, there, so there's, a, there's probably a lot of these, and, and depending, depending on how broad you make your definition, uh, you'll include more, of course. But, I, I, you know, it is kind of interesting. I think on the, the JD call, and we kind of talked a little bit about this, they did mention that you know they're watching the market and they're trying to see who comes up with a, a profitable business model that kind of works in these areas and they they basically say no one's figured it out yet and while you know Alibaba, Tencent, Meituan, DD, all these guys are kind of going into these local services, um, it's really you know like an actual model. And Meituan announced last week and you know. We talked about them before before this uh, recording here, but yeah, this is this is an issue. I mean, they're they're just the margins aren't really there, and even the cash flow isn't really there. And so, I don't know if we can say you know these are big growth areas. There will be a winner, right? There will maybe a couple winners because they're because they're in bits and atoms and not electrons, but you know. What at what point can we say that it's a bad decision to not go into cash burning, low or negative margin businesses? I think we got to we got to see what happens. It's, I mean, this is this is why it's so interesting to watch China sometimes, right? Yeah, sure. So in terms of the forward looking statements, I, I I don't want to hound this point too long, but I just do wish to call. So the precedent was uh, last year when it comes to Elon Musk and the discrepancy between. Is it 500,000 cars or 400,000 cars that we're going to build and deliver? Now, if that was an SEC violation, uh, so getting that wrong and getting the, the numbers mixed up there, and then you saying two years in that you're still going to open, that you're still going to open a million in that time period, plus you're also saying that you're opening a thousand a week, which on the basis of those numbers that we just ran through, that's not possible. So, 
I, I, I just want to leave that one open. I just want to leave that one open. And then in terms of the, uh, the stuff around whether or not there's a, a viable business model uh, for the convenience stores, I would say yes for the franchise fees. I mean, that's nice. But um, in a former life, I was a management consultant. And one of the sort of projects I did was governance for one of Australia's largest fr- franchise networks. They're hard to govern. And governance of, let's say, 50,000 franchisees is already very difficult, let alone a million and so that's, 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 so that's one part of the puzzle. And then the last part is whether or not the offline, uh, so the omni-channel supermarkets have a future. And that's where I think Liu Sandong may have been underplaying how successful Hermar has been. So if you look at uh, Alibaba Investor Day last year, where they inv- unveiled the Hermar uh, financials for the first time, um, those folks are doing pretty damn well. So uh, they're... The revenue per square meter, RPSM, for those who are familiar with the, the retail industry, uh, main measure of retail efficiency is three to five times more than domestic competitors. And, and at that point, you've sort, of, you've sort of got to go, okay, well, if you're making three to five times more revenue per square meter than a traditional retailer, the omnichannel supermarkets might actually have a, a future. Not that, of course, you want to be operating too many of them, but for Alibaba, it's important to prove the concept that New retail done the Alibaba way has some material economic benefit. And then that's a way for them to sell or better sell their retail as a solution to, to businesses like Nestle and Starbucks. The ability for you to be able to say, look what we did. We as an internet company, as a newcomer, um, did three to five times more revenue than the incumbents. And we can help you do something quite similar in your industry. That actually sounds like yeah. a, that actually sounds like something you'd put in a pitch deck to, to yeah. those large retailers, right? Yeah, revenue numbers. I mean, so just uh, like Huma, they have very small kind of warehouses and they're, uh, they're count, I mean, they're not small, but they're, you know, compared to general retail, uh, regular retail, brick and mortar retail, it's it's a little bit different. The comparison's kind of, yep. but they are still, they are, aren't they still loss-making? I, I mean, I don't think it's profitable on an operations or maybe it's profitable on a gross Profit. Yeah, so this is this is where there's a little bit of cherry picking to the numbers, right? So um, Alibaba only unveiled the financials of Koma stores that are 18 months old, which they call mature stores. Now, if we say conservatively that it takes 18 months to get three to five times more than than your sort of peer competitors, then you've got to say, all right, well, does that only apply to the first tier cities? Because that's where they were. Um, for the ones that uh, are 18 months old. And then we've got to see whether or not that holds for the second tier and the third tier where they are now. So there's a few question marks around it, sure. But again, uh, I go back to the point of Alibaba is not here trying to operate a countrywide supermarket network. It it doesn't want to. Instead, my read of, of their ambitions there is to establish proof of concept and then take retail as a service to large retailers because there's nothing more than what internet companies like than being able to roll out a solution at zero marginal cost. And that is exactly what retailers as a service, or at least part of, part of it, uh, purport to do. Um, Michael, uh, thank you so much for joining us. For our listeners, uh, how can they get in touch with you? How can they you know, read what you write? How can they, they follow you? Uh, so best way is uh, LinkedIn. So Michael Norris, and it's the, the sort of the, the young kid with the, the crew cut. Uh, and then the other best way is, of course, to um, uh, sign up for 
uh, tech node and get the newsletter delivered straight to your inbox. Look at this. He's great. He's, he's, he's pitching it for us. So that, so, <laughs> so that was completely unprompted. That was completely unprompted. Your daily dose of China tech. And so, uh, it's Michael Norris, like, spelt like, uh, Chuck Norris, right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and the sort of the name, uh, is the same as his son as well. Uh, so his son is actually called Mike. Uh, I, I go by the full, the full seven letter Michael, but, um, yeah, there's some, there's some overlap there. How's your roundhouse kick? Awful. I've got bad knees. <laughs> okay. Do your, do your tears cure cancer? Haven't, 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 that's a good one. I haven't heard that one before. Uh, well, you know, you know the joke, right? Like, uh, Chuck Norris's tears cure cancer, but yeah, problem is he never cries. <laughs> that, 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 that's actually quite good. I might, I might, I might use that at a, at a, at a party in the yeah. future. No, good one. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> the, when, when Chuck Norris jumps in the ocean, he, uh, he doesn't get wet. The ocean gets Chuck Norris. Oh, so. okay. No, good one. Good one, good one. It, it also is pretty good because you could basically do it all with, with Xi Jinping propaganda now too, where you can just say, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Let's, uh, let's, <laughs> Michael, thanks for, um, coming on the podcast. <laughs> you're, you're, you're absolutely welcome. Um, and thank you very much for having me on. All right. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Appreciate it. Bye bye.